0: In recent messages, I've been dealing with some historical, theological, and typical themes from the Pentateuch. Just to remind you, the Pentateuch is that description of the first five books of the Bible. You'll be familiar with the term pentagram or the pentagon, because of the five-sided nature of it. The Pentateuch is the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Wonderful books, foundational books of Scripture. When the Lord Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, he met two people. And as they were walking along, the Bible says he began to expound unto them, in all of the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. But it says, beginning at Moses. And when it says beginning at Moses, it means beginning with the five books of Moses with the book of Genesis and those other four books that follow. Now, we were talking a bit last time about what Genesis reveals to us concerning God. We want to know who God is. We know that there is a God by His handiwork. You go out at night, on a clear night, in a dark place, and look up at the stars, and you think about what David talked about, when I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of Man that thou visitest him? You go to somewhere like the Grand Canyon, or you go to see some of the seven wonders of the world, and you think, wow, look at the beauties of creation. This all didn't just come about by itself. Someone made this. And we know that God made all things. And what we learn is that he is a personal God. We talked a little about that last time, about God's person. He has a name. He was known as El Shaddai, which means the God who is sufficient, God Almighty in the English. El Shaddai in the Hebrew, the God who is sufficient. And that tells us something about God. He is one who has all the power and the ability to keep his word. And we'll talk a little more about that later on. He is a personal God. He's someone you can get to know. And God revealed himself to Moses as Jehovah. Jehovah is a Hebrew term meaning the I am. Remember he said to Moses, I am that I am. A God who is ever present, but who is a covenant keeping God. And that's how Moses and that's how we experience the Lord. God's person. We talked a little bit about God's power. In fact, we talked a lot about God's power, especially when we referred to creation. There's a lot to be said about creation as a display of God's power. The wonderful thing is, as the Bible reveals it to us, God spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He spake the worlds into existence. He just said, let there be light and there was light. And God does this in the new creation. When He saves a soul, He speaks to a soul. He sends light into a darkened heart. And suddenly there is that light of the gospel of Christ that shines within their heart. We talk about creation being the work of six 24-hour days. And that's why we have the Sabbath day. That's why we have the day of worship. The day when we set aside everything else for God because of Creation. You read that in the commandment in Exodus 20, verse 8, onwards to verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? For in six days God created the heaven and the earth. And then he rested the seventh day, the day after the six days of work. Then we talk about God creating man. And how that man is the apex of God's creation. We don't believe in cruelty to animals, of course we don't. But we, at least I do, believe that you can eat animals. There's a group called PETA. I'm not going to talk anymore about that because i only offend somebody. Right? People eating tasty animals. That's, that's me. If you don't eat meat, that's fine. Because actually, at the beginning, the diet that God gave to Adam and Eve was they would eat every herb of the field. So they ate plant-based Food. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing whatever you believe about those matters, don't make a religion out of it. That's the point. We're not to make a religion out of food and so forth. But man is different from the other creatures. It is not murder to kill an animal, it's murder when you kill a man unlawfully. Because man is distinct from the other creatures. He's the apex of God's creation. It doesn't say in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the animals in the image of God. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's how God created man. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. And He gave them dominion over the animals. So remember this, unlike all the other living creatures... Adam was formed by God of the dust of the ground and God breathed life into him. You don't read that about any of the other creatures. No other being that was living received that special breath of God but our first parents. And again, there's a special dignity attached to mankind by creation. He's a higher creation than the beasts and the birds. And that's why capital murder is to be punished by capital punishment. A life for a life. This is a biblical concept. You see, to attack another man unlawfully is to attack the image of God. For man is made in the image of God. Now in relation to man as he was prior to the fall, before he sinned, we can assert that man was created perfect but fallible perfect but capable of change we know he was capable capable of change because he fell from that position in which God had created him he was created upright ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 teaches that man hath made or god hath made man upright but they've sought out many inventions man was capable of falling from that perfect state in which he was created and he did and the advent Of sin and man's fall, the account of that is found in Genesis chapter 3. And we read that earlier in the service this morning. You see here the entrance of sin into the world. And immediately we see fallen man's behavior. Now, God from the start actually dealt with man on the basis of covenant. You see this in Genesis 2, verse 17. Without getting too technical, you have here what is called in theology the covenant of works. God said, verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2, He commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God put man under this covenant covenant, Of works. He was to keep God's commandment. Not to eat of the forbidden fruit. So here's a covenant that God made with man. And you will see that that is referred to elsewhere in the Bible. If I would just refer to one verse in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Hosea. Which is one of the minor prophets. After Daniel, Hosea, chapter 6. And verse 7, we have a really interesting statement made there. Listen to this. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Now God is speaking there about certain people and how that they had transgressed the covenant. But notice the the description that he gives. But they, like men... And if you have a marginal reference in your authorised version, you'll see that beside the word men... In the margin it says Adam. But they like Adam. So here we have the fact that God entered into a covenant relationship with Adam. Genesis 2 verse 17. Basically it was this. Life is promised on the condition of obedience. This do and thou shalt live. So if we look at this hypothetically... If Adam had never sinned, if he had continued in obedience to God, he would have never died. He would have lived on out into eternity. This do, and thou shalt live. That was the covenant of works. But Adam broke that covenant of works. Adam did what he was not supposed to do. He did what God told him not to do. He disobeyed God. To remain in fellowship with God, man had to obey. He must keep on obeying. But he didn't. He fell. And when that happened, he had no desire for God's fellowship. Do you ever wonder why people generally in the world today really don't want anything to do with God or Christ or Christianity or holy living or even church why is that? Well you could blame, as some do, hypocrites. You know there are people like that who say, Well, I, I don't go to church because of the hypocrites. Okay. So when you stand before God and you're giving an account for yourself, you're gonna say the reason that I didn't come to you, Lord, and obey you and, and, and serve you is because of all these other hypocrites. That won't wash. There are hypocrites. To some degree, every person alive is a hypocrite. Do you ever think about that? Because we don't always do what we're supposed to do. We don't live perfectly, even those that are God's people. There's hypocrisy in our lives, whether we are willing to admit it or not. But here's the thing. Man has no desire for God's fellowship, not because of other people. Not because of what he sees as inconsistency in other people, even preachers. It's because, and you'll see the reason for it here in Genesis chapter 3, when man fell, he had no desire to seek after God any longer. What do we read in Genesis 3? Well, look at it in verse 8 and verse 9. And they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now look at this. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Why are they hiding away from God? Should they not have been saying, you know what, we disobeyed God, we did the wrong thing. We should be running to God and telling Him that we're sorry. We should be trying to find God. But they're not trying to find God, they're trying to get away from God. They're hiding Which of course is a stupid thing to do anyway because you can't hide from God. Psalm 139 teaches us that even if you make your bed in hell, God will be able to find you there. And so the Lord God, verse 9 of Genesis 3, The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Isn't that remarkable? Man is not seeking after God. He's trying to get away from God. He's running away from God but God's seeking Him. And God says, Adam, where are you? I'm looking for you. You know that's what the Lord is doing in the world today. People are not seeking after God until they realize that God is seeking after them. And when God seeks after you, and He finds you, you will seek Him. There's a little hymn in our book which says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me it's of the Lord he is the one who does the seeking remember what it says of Jesus in Luke 19 verse 10 the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost you don't find the lost sheep in the parable of Luke 15 out there in the mountains wild and bare out looking for the shepherd he's not looking for the shepherd the shepherd is out looking for him And the shepherd goes out there and finds him and brings him home on his shoulders. So again, we're learning about this personal God. We're also learning about the purpose of God. But the idea that man, every man is by nature on a quest to find the Lord and to meet him is a fallacy. Men are not looking for God really. They're looking to get away from God. And so, don't we find this in some scriptures where it clearly mentions it? One from the Old Testament, one from the New. The 10th Psalm, Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. See that? He will not seek after God. Paul takes that up in Romans In Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. And he says this. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And the word none is a contraction of two words. Not one. There is not one that seeketh after God. Away with this idea that men are on this quest to find God. No they're not. Men are on a quest to get away from God until the Lord seeks them out now the spread of sin in Genesis is remarkable after Adam and Eve sinned it didn't take long for sin to break forth, did it? right within the first family you had two boys Cain and Abel and what happened? because God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering Cain murdered his brother Abel. The first family. Oh how quickly the effects of sin were felt after the fall of man. It didn't take very long. And then we read of the days prior to the flood. We're right here in the first few chapters of Genesis. The very early chapters from chapter 3 where sin came into the world. By the time you get to chapter 6. The world itself is filled with wickedness. The days before the flood. What does it say of man at that time? Well, Genesis chapter 6 mentions it clearly in verse number 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Oh, how quickly the effects of sin were felt in the world. Then, of course, you have the whole story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. It wasn't long before everything in this world was affected. Sin wrought widespread devastation. And the curse that was pronounced by God upon sin in Genesis chapter 3 manifested itself all the way through human history. We're speaking about God's power in that God began With creation, He created everything and He pronounced it very good. You read Genesis chapter 1 and notice the number of times that God said that. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12 of Genesis 1. You see it again down there in verse 21. And God saw That it was good. In verse 25, and God saw that it was good. Everything that God created was good, but then sin destroyed it. Sin always destroys that which is good, makes it into something that is bad. And so the book of Genesis begins with God creating everything very good, and how does it end? Genesis 50 verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The very last thing you read of in Genesis is a coffin in Egypt. What does that tell us? The wages of sin is death. Death has passed upon all men in that all have sinned. We know that the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi and it's so interesting to read there at the end of Malachi before you come into the New Testament what's the last thing that's mentioned in the Old Testament lest I come and smite the earth with a curse see at the end of Genesis a coffin at the end of the Old Testament a curse this is the result of sin Even though our great God created all things perfect, the sin of man in Genesis chapter 3 brought the curse. But we can speak about God's providence as a theme in Genesis before we come to this other thought that I have today. The subject of God's providence is developed in the book of Genesis. Now, what is God's providence? It's something that's seen in the Lord overruling and superintending things. He is sustaining all things by the word of His power. He is working in this world. And we refer to this working of providence as the ordinary work of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a compendium of doctrine that's based upon the Bible... It reminds us there that providence is seen in God's preserving and governing all His creatures and their actions. And again, God's providence really overlaps with His power because He brings about all that He brings about by His power. But this is God's preserving and governing all His creatures and their actions. See, most people think that everything just goes on and Nobody interferes. Nobody is doing anything about it. People are doing whatever they want. The world is out of control. It's spiraling and spinning out of control. I want to tell you that it is not out of control. It might appear to be to you and to me. But if I just repeat what it says in Hebrews 1 verse 3. We read this last Lord's day. It says of the Lord who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Watch this and upholding all things by the word of His power. That's something that we talked about in Colossians, where the Lord has created all things, but He is also the sustainer of all things. All things are created by Him and for Him. God upholds all things by the word of His power. We're not deists. And the acting of providence is not fate. Let's be clear about this. Fatalism is a pagan notion. You know what fatalism is? What will be, will be. When I lived lived in Scotland, there was a saying that people had there was, what's for you will not go by you. That's what they used to say. What's for you will not go by you. In other words, what will be, will be. Whatever is going to happen, is going to happen. But that's a pagan idea. And we don't believe in that. What, rather, we believe that the God who is all wise, all knowing, and indeed all powerful is one who brings his purposes to pass. That's what God is doing. He's bringing his purposes to fruition. Things are not out of control, God is in control. And I want you to see in the book of Genesis that this is very, very clearly illustrated. We haven't got time to turn up the Scriptures concerned. Perhaps in future messages we will deal with those things. But in various incidents, this providence of God can be clearly identified. For example, God intervened in Sarah's situation to fulfill His promise of a seed. Think about this. God told Abram, You're going to have a son. That son will be a father of many nations. And eventually through that son will come the Messiah. According to the flesh. That's the promise. Abraham waited for years. And it got to be that Abraham was such an old man and his wife was such an old woman. That she was well beyond and so was he. child-bearing Years. And whenever Sarah heard the angel and the others talking with Abraham about the fact that she was going to have a child, she laughed. <laughs> I'm going to have a child. What am I, 90? 90, 91 or 90? <laughs> God said, I heard you laughing. Sarah said, oh no, I didn't laugh. Ah, oh, but you did. You did laugh. But even though she laughed, God still fulfilled his promise. And God did something that was against nature. You'll not find anywhere in this world a 90 year old woman with a child that's just been newly born. It's not going to happen. Nor will you find any person who has had a virgin birth. But the same God who gave seed to Abraham and Sarah produced the virgin birth when Mary had Christ without the involvement of a human being outside of herself. See, God was able to fulfill his promise of a seed. And one of the things about Abraham was that he tried to circumvent God's promise. He's thinking, now wait a minute, this is not going to happen. I'm too old, she's too old. And Sarah said, now I've got a handmaid, Hagar. Abraham, why don't you take her and you could have a child with her. And he'll be the child of promise and that's what happened and that's how Ishmael was born and Abram said to the Lord let Ishmael live before thee Lord let him be the child of promise God said no no it's not Ishmael he's the child of the flesh but you will yet have the child of promise and God's providence brought it about you see men and women what is extraordinary to man is nothing to God nothing to him And I wish I could rest more upon that. I wish I could believe more in that. I wish I was more firmly planted on that in my life. To realize that what is impossible with men is possible with God. God is able. You see another example of this in Genesis 24. Again, I say there's an overlap between God's power and His providence. Because there in Genesis 24, you have a servant of Abraham called Eliezer. He's being sent by Abram to find a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac's getting on a bit, you see. and We don't want him to be a bachelor forever. It's time he had a wife. So we want you to go into a far country, Eliezer, back to where I came from. Don't want him to get a wife among the heathen. I want you to go back there and find a wife. And you look at Genesis 24. Oh, how God's providence guided there. Eliezer comes across a bunch of women and they're bringing water to the animals and he thinks hmm, oh, she's a really nice girl I wonder if I wonder if she would be the one and she was the one Rebecca God guided in that and as Eliezer prayed God answered prayer and what was his testimony in Genesis 24 I being in the way the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren God has answered prayer. And again, this is the great feature of the narrative concerning Joseph. What a beautiful story the story of Joseph is. I would commend it to you. From Genesis chapter 37 right to chapter 50, that section of Genesis deals with the life of Joseph and partly with Jacob. But what a wonderful story it is. All the way along. and In the end, it was clear that God meant it unto good. Joseph was hated by his brothers. They took opportunity to throw him into a pit one day and decide what they're going to do with him. Some Ishmaelites were travelling by and one of them said, hey, why don't we sell him as a slave into Egypt? And that's what they did. And away he went. And they invented a story. They took his coat of many colours, they dipped it in an animal's blood and tore it in shreds and told their old father an animal killed him. And there's Joseph away off in Egypt And while he's there, he's working for Potiphar and his wife had designs upon Joseph. He would not respond to her designs, so she accused him falsely of rape. He was thrown in prison for two years. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that his feet were held fast in irons. I'm sure he might have sat there and thought, God has forgotten all about me. But the Lord hadn't forgotten The Lord had given him a promise, you see, in dreams much earlier. The dreams of the sheafs bowing down to his sheaf. And that other great dream that he had. And God was yet to fulfill those things. And in the end, when the whole story was told in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph said to his brothers, Ye meant it for evil. Everything you did, you did it for an evil intention. But God meant it unto good. God meant it unto good. See, God in His providence was working out His purpose. And so we see, as the Bible says in Psalms, how man proposes, but God disposes. Ephesians 1 verse 11, He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Brethren and sisters, believe in that in your life. Rest upon that. Stand upon that. To use a phrase, you can take that to the bank. God will Work all things after the counsel of his own will. I hear people say all the time, well, good luck. And I know what they mean. And they mean very well. And they're well intentioned when they say it. But I feel like saying, no, no. There is no luck. It's God's providence, it's God's goodness. I'm blessed. I'm not lucky, I'm blessed. There is no luck. There's no chance. There's no happenstance. People think that all the time. Oh, what a coincidence. No, there are no coincidences. God's working all things after the counsel of His own will. Oh, the providence of God is such a wonderful truth. You'll see it all the way through the Pentateuch, particularly in the book of Genesis. Yes, He's a personal God. He's a powerful God. He's a God of providence. And He's a God with a purpose. Let me speak of this. God's purpose of grace is seen, especially in Genesis, in the doctrine of sovereign election. I know that that is a doctrine that causes many who even profess to be Christians to gnash their teeth. I've known of people who just were almost ready to fight with me when I mentioned predestination or election. The idea that God would choose certain people to be His favourites, so to speak. Well, didn't God do that with Israel? Didn't the Lord do that with Abraham? How come God didn't choose everybody out of her of the Chaldees? He didn't even choose everybody in Abram's family. He chose Abram, brought him out. The doctrine of sovereign election is a biblical truth. And the instances of God choosing certain men is the focus of Genesis Chapters 12 to 36 especially. Just mark that down. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 36. This is the focus. God in sovereign election choosing men in his purpose. Now there's a discussion in the New Testament of the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9. I heard an amusing story of one preacher who was of a different kind of a persuasion. And because he didn't like what was in Romans chapter 9 and he couldn't really deal with it, he said to his people, this is such deep doctrine that we're going to have to jump over this into chapter 10. Really? It's such deep doctrine we're going to ignore it? We're going to pretend it's not there? No, this is the Word of God. This is revealed truth. And incidentally, Though Romans chapter 9 deals with the doctrine of predestination and election, you will see how it begins. It begins with the burden that the Apostle Paul had in his heart for souls. Listen to these opening words. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed." From Christ. Anathema. For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to flesh, who are Israelites. Oh, what a burden this man had for the salvation of his kith and kin, his fellow countrymen. He couldn't bear the thought that they would be lost. This is how he begins in speaking about election. He goes on to speak about Abraham and Isaac and when you come down to verse 11 he's speaking about the two sons Jacob and Esau the sons of Isaac and Rebekah look at the words in brackets for the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil See, it couldn't be on the basis of what they did That they were chosen. That one was chosen and not the other. Because they hadn't done anything yet. They weren't even born yet. That the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, that's Rebecca, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's exactly what people do say. Oh, well, that's not fair. Isn't that what people say? That's not fair. That God would choose Jacob and not Esau. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For He said to Moses, and here's a quotation from Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, God will save... Whom He desires to save. Whom He chooses to save. Now here's the thing. Think about it like this. All men are rebels against God. All men, all creation are under God's condemnation. All men deserve nothing from God. That's the starting point. We don't deserve anything from God but wrath and eternal hell. That's what we deserve. But out of that mass of humanity, God out of his good pleasure has chosen a people to be his own. He doesn't owe any of them anything. But in Christ he has chosen a people to be his own. And he bestows his grace upon them. The outworking of all that is a great mystery. But it is a fact. And there are numerous examples of God's sovereign election In the book of Genesis, I think about Seth, who was a replacement, if you like, for one of the sons, Abel, who was killed. You have Noah. You read in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25 these words. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, saith she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. He was God's choice. Then you come to Genesis 6 verse 8. Look at these words. Look at them very carefully. Genesis 6 verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say that the eyes of the Lord found grace in Noah. It doesn't say that. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had mercy upon him. How's come Noah and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife were the only people saved? Eight people in the ark and all the rest of the world was destroyed. Why? Because that's what God purposed. And grace, as is mentioned here, it can be viewed as the display of God's favour that He demonstrates to man with no ulterior motives to man irrespective of man's merits or demerits I know that's quite a definition, it's a mouthful so let me repeat it grace can be viewed as the display of God's favour that he demonstrates to man with no ulterior motives to man irrespective of man's merits or demerits in other words you might say, well, that person is a good person. They deserve to be saved. That person's not a good person. They don't deserve to be saved. That's not how God works. A preacher once was approached by a man. I think it was Spurgeon. And the man said, Mr. Spurgeon, I've got a real problem with this text in Romans 9. What's your problem? Well, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Spurgeon said, what's your problem? Well, I just don't understand it. Esau, have I hated? Spurgeon says, oh, shh, that's not difficult for me to understand. The bit that I can't understand is, Jacob, have I loved? You know what kind of a person Jacob was? His name means supplanter. He was a twister. You look at his life and the things that he did. Look at how he, along with his mother, pulled the wool over the eyes of his old father pretended that he was his brother and killed goats and and put the skins on his arms because his brother was hairy and he was kind of bald in his skin and I believe his father had some notion of what was going on the voice is the voice of Jacob the hands are the hands of Esau but he blessed him that's how Jacob got the blessing. And yet it was in God's purpose. It wasn't opposed to God's purpose. You look at that and you think, well, Jacob didn't deserve God's mercy and grace. Did he? No, he didn't. But neither do you. And neither do I. When my dear mother got converted, the night she got saved, she signed a card. Because the preacher was one of these characters who believed that you should sign a decision card My mother came to the point where she realised that was nothing to do with salvation. But she signed the card anyway. Put her name on it, the date that she got converted. But on the back of it, she wrote two verses of a hymn that she really liked. This is on the early part of her Christian life, like right at the beginning. And here's what it says. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice, they'd rather starve than come. Twas the same grace that spread the feast, that sweetly forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. Oh, she got it. She knew she wasn't any better than anybody else. She didn't have a leg up on God's salvation. She didn't deserve to be saved. Any more than the person down the road deserved to be saved. It was all of God's grace. And that's the same with all of us. Man in his sinful condition has no claim to grace. Grace has its origin in the giver, God's purpose. You consider Noah again. He was set apart sovereignly by God, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was nothing in Noah to merit the favour of God. It does tell you in Genesis 6 verse 9 that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. But that was after he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That was the evidence of his salvation, not the cause of it. See, some people have this all... Out of shape. They think that, well, if you're good, if you do your best, and you try to be a good person, then God will have favor upon you. As if a, salvation is a kind of a reward for good behavior. No, it's not. Salvation is the reward for Christ's behavior. It's what Jesus has done that saves us, not what we have done. One of our hymns puts it this way Not what my hands have done can save this guilty soul. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy He hath saved us. See, Noah in himself was no better than others of that generation. There was nothing special about Noah. God's choice of Noah, however, was sovereign. Now look at Abraham, very quickly. There was nothing in Abram to merit the favour of God. Where's the first mention of him? When you go back to Genesis chapter 11... And it talks in the closing verses there about his family. And then it says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram. Here's something that's already happened. What did he say? Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now, this is not long after the Tower of Babel. But God visits Abram in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia. And He calls him out of there. Why? Why did God call call him out of there? Was there something special about Abram? No, there was nothing special about Abram. In fact, if you... Compare what it says in Joshua 24. And this is the wonderful thing about the Bible. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, that's how you get what the overall teaching of the Bible is. So in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, Joshua is speaking to the people of Israel. And here's what he says. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, he's talking about the river Euphrates, in old time, Even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. See that? Abram was a pagan idolater, just like all the rest of them in Mesopotamia. Those who dwelt there were pagans, every one of them. And Abram was one of them. But God called him out. Why? Because he chose to. If you're a believer this morning, I'm sure you would ask the question, why would the Lord save me? Why would the Lord save me? And not somebody else. You might be able to think of some other person and there's such a kind, decent upstanding individual. They do anything for you. They give you the shirt off their back and yet they're not Christians. And you think to yourself why is it? I'm saved and that person's not saved. Because salvation is of grace. Every bit of it is of grace. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Paul asked the Corinthians. I've never heard anybody yet who got on their knees and prayed and said, Lord, thank you that I chose you. Thank you, Lord, that All these other rascals, they refuse you, but I I chose you. I've never heard anybody pray like that. You come on down the line. God sovereignly calling Abram out of that place. Election at work. You come on down the line to Isaac. You come on down to Jacob. Esau was not chosen. Jacob was. Why? That the purpose of God according to election might stand. There are other instances of the working out of sovereign election. Joseph is chosen over Reuben. Ephraim is chosen over Manasseh. Those two sons of Joseph, he brought them into his old dying father, Jacob, that he might bless them. And he wanted his father's hand to be placed on this boy's head and the other boy's head. And Jacob crossed his hands over. You know why? Because the blessing was to be, the blessing of the right hand was to be upon that one. Ephraim, rather than Manasseh. The purpose of God. Here is God progressing His elective purpose to bring the Messiah. That's ultimately what would happen. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, centuries later, He would come from that certain line according to the flesh. And so, in short, there had to be an Isaac and there had to be a Jacob, etc., etc., in order to bring about Christ the Messiah. That's what it's all about. And we'll speak a little more next time about some of the conclusions that we can make regarding election or certain observations that we can make concerning that. But at the end of the day, our election is in Christ. You see, He is the elect one. He is the chosen one, ultimately. Ultimately. And we learn of that in the Scripture, in the book of Isaiah. The Lord says in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect. The word means chosen. In whom my soul delighteth. That's Christ. And when you come to Ephesians 1, verse 4, what does it say about God's people? According as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's the wonderful thing. Christ has a people whom He has covenanted to save. He came into the world to save them. To shed His blood for them. He sent forth His Spirit into the world to bring them to Himself. And ultimately He will bring them to glory. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful thing that is to belong to Jesus. The hymn puts it like this. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone. But for eternity. I trust today that He's your Savior. I trust that you've come to Him. People sometimes say, well how can I know I'm one of God's elect? John six thirty-seven: All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, that means under no circumstances there are no circumstances in which God will cast you out if you come to Christ how do I know I'm one of God's elect because I've come to Christ all that the Father giveth me shall come to me